Have you ever noticed how many artists depict the scene of Mary receiving the news from the angel Gabriel that she's going to be the mother of Jesus in such a calm and a quiet manner? There's a sweet smile on Mary's face and the angel wings are all neatly folded in place, every emotion serenely captured. Frankly, I think it's more likely that Mary looked uh, like somebody startled by a home invasion, that her heart skipped more than just a few beats before the angel even had time to get around to saying, fear not. In fact, the, the biblical account says that after the angel's first lines, that Mary was greatly troubled at his words. And I think that's just a kind way of saying that she was more than confused. She was scared out of her wits. Well, how would you have reacted if in the sameness of an ordinary day in your life, some angel broke in to announce to you a word from God, a word about anything, much less that you were going to miraculously birth God's son? I'm afraid the Christmas story has often become so familiar to us that it's almost like, well, like sliding into a pair of well-worn bedroom slippers all soft and comfortable. We don't feel the adrenaline surge. We don't imagine the shock. And all we see is this sweet, tender smile on, on Mary's face. And we miss all of her fear. The story's lost its edge, the terrifying and the puzzling reality of it all. That this Gabriel-Mary exchange wasn't just a simple script comfortably played out between two innocent actors, but it was a real-life drama full of surprise and suspense and no small measure of personal challenge. In fact, if I'd been writing the Christmas story, I'd never have imagined that would happen in the way that it did. If, if it's at all possible, try to disengage the unstartling ways in which you've come to hear this story and try to listen to it once more in a fresh way. Let it, let it puzzle you and surprise you and prompt you to ask some questions or even to scratch your head a little bit trying to figure it all out. And then I'll share some of my own reflections about the surprises and lessons that I find within the Christmas story, too. Well, Luke's gospel in chapter 1 tells the story this way, beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. It says Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You've found favor with God. You'll be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she was one who was said to be barren. And now she's in her sixth month because nothing is impossible with God. I'm the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. 
Martin Luther in a, Luther in a uh, Christmas sermon once said that there were three miracles that occurred at Christ's birth. That God became a man, that a virgin conceived, and that Mary believed. And then he went on to say that he thought that the latter may have actually been the greatest miracle of all, that Mary believed. Do you believe in miracles? And, and if you do, could you ever dare to believe that you could be a part of a story like Mary's? And is there anything about Mary's story that even makes you wonder how she became a part? That is there a way that, that you might be able to experience Mary's miracle too? When God decides to do a miracle, where does he turn? Now, it's tempting to think that God would never choose to do a miracle for you or me, and yet God has often chosen his, to do his most extraordinary work through ordinary people. If you were God and picking someone for whom to birth your son into the world, would you have chosen Mary? Now, before you rush to agree and let the well-worn familiarity with your story limit your thinking, let me remind you of a few important particulars. We're not told just how old Mary was, but if she were typical of those engaged to be married in her day, she was probably not much older than 13, 14. Some speculate she could have even been younger. You ever raised a 13 or 14-year-old girl in your house? Or can you at least remember what you were like when you were growing up around that age? So let me ask. However much you may love or appreciate such a tender young child, how comfortable would you feel about trusting someone like that to be the mother of Jesus? What was God thinking when he picked Mary? Little experience in life behind her, no experience in being a mother, not even being a wife. And do you know where Mary lived? Not in a place or even any place that remotely smacked of privilege. What was God thinking? She was from Nazareth, a sleepy little backwoods sort of town, nestled in a region that had no claim to fame, just a strong reputation for being populated by the uneducated in the common. In fact, someone is later quoted in scripture as saying, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? It just wasn't the sort of place where you'd go searching for a person of importance. Mary was poor, too. And she did have a strain of royal blood flowing through her, her veins, but that didn't elevate uh, the social or economic level on which she lived. And like most of the people in her day, she existed on the edge of poverty. And she wasn't marrying into money, either. She was engaged to a working-class young man, who made a living by the labor of his hands. They'd be able to put food on their table, but they'd have little more than the necessities, and they'd have scarce little in the way of security. I ask it again, what was God thinking? But here's God's messenger inviting someone quite ordinary to be a part of a miracle. Why are we so often inclined to think that God would choose to work his wonders only through the significant? Why do we tend to think that it's more about us and about our resources and means than it is about him? When Jesus would later pick his disciples, he didn't select them from among the grand. They were, they were fishermen with callous, worn hands and salty tongues. 
tax collectors with worse reputations than common criminals. A sinful woman from Samaria who'd been married five times would even be one of his most successful evangelists. Smelly shepherds would soon be the first to visit the, the manger, a manger in a humble little village called Bethlehem. What was God thinking? I like what Paul has to say over in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and following. He says, take a good look, friends, at, at who you were when you got called into this life. I don't see many of the brightest and the best among you, not many influential, not many from high society families. Isn't it obvious that God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks and exploits and abuses, chose those nobodies to expose the hallowed pretensions of the somebodies? Everything that we have comes from God by way of Jesus Christ. That's why we have the saying, if you're going to blow a horn, blow a trumpet for God. When God wanted Israel to capture a city called Jericho, he worked through a prostitute named Rahab. When he wanted someone to lead an army to defeat the Midianites, he chose a man from the weakest tribe in Israel, the least impressive in his family, who'd been hiding out in a wine press and said, Gideon, you're going to be my man. When he wanted to defeat a giant named Goliath, he didn't choose a mighty warrior, but he called up a young shepherd boy named David and said, forget the sword, a slingshot will do. When he wanted to birth his son into the world, he chose a young, poor, insignificant, inexperienced girl named Mary. And he said, I want to work the greatest miracle of all time through you. Now, it seems that there's a pattern here, doesn't it? If you, if you take the time to notice, God does some of his greatest work through obscure, otherwise unnoticeable nobodies. At least they're nobodies in terms of what the world tends to prize as greatness. And you could be asking yourself, well, why would God ever choose to work a miracle through you? Well, I bet Mary asked herself the very same question. But when it comes to miracles, it's not what we can do. It's what he can do. And even still today, a miracle through someone like Mary or even a miracle through me or you. God has always done some of his greatest work through common, ordinary folks. Through unexpected souls whose names history might never have remembered had God not sent an angel or whatever means to say, I want to use you. But as we reflect further upon Mary's story, these nobodies must be also people with willing hearts. There was an uncertainty that lingered in the room after the angel spoke that the question about how many, how Mary would respond, Gabriel just had to wait and see. He, he could count the flutters of a hummingbird wing and never miss a beat. He could he could stare into the heart of the sun without blinking and watch the atoms burn, but he, he couldn't see into the mysteries of the human heart, so all he could do was wait while Mary thought his announcement over. The coming of Christ was conditioned by what Mary was willing to do. Now, I don't mean to suggest that God's ever limited in what he can do if he so chooses, but when you read through scripture, you find that his miracles often don't come about unless they are met by willing hearts. Mary's miracle came about because she said, yes, but what if she had said 
No. There are lots of reasons why Mary could have, perhaps even should have, chosen to say no. Consider what God was asking her to do. He was asking her to accept an enormous risk. There would be many, probably most, who would question her virtue. Not the least, and first of whom, would be Joseph. She'd be the focus of judgment and ridicule by those who could not possibly understand. Her reputation would be at stake. And we care about what people think about us. At least most of us do. And in the culture of her day, for her to conceive a child by someone else while betrothed to a future husband would have been seen as adultery. And adultery was a crime that was actually punishable by death at its harshest extreme. And then there'd be all the enormous rewriting of her life plan. She and Joseph had their dreams, and now she was being asked to substitute God's plans for her own. That frequently seems to be the case when God wants to do a miracle. He asks us to accept his will and his plan for our lives, to loosen the grip on our own dreams, and to give him full control. What do we do when God challenges us to let go of our will and to follow his? Ron Hutchcraft tells a story about a close friend of his who had a three-year-old daughter named Tanya, she was a little girl with captivating dark eyes, a winsome smile, high-energy personality, and a mind of her own. And her dad was crossing a very busy street with her one day when he said, Now hold Daddy's hand. But Tanya didn't like the idea, and so she just looked up at him with those big dark eyes and said, That's okay, Daddy. I'll hold my own hand. You ever felt that way when you sensed that God was asking you to let him lead and you just didn't want to follow? Mary could have said, God, I'm Joseph's girl, you know, or I'd like to live out my own life in my own way, thank you, please, or I'll just hold my own hand if it's all the same to you. But what Mary finally said was this, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. We did a major capital stewardship campaign in one of the churches that I led a number of years ago, and through the whole soul-stretching program, we encouraged the people of the church to pray a common prayer. Here's what it was. Lord, what do you want to do through me to accomplish your will in this church? Could you ever comfortably embrace and express that prayer as your own, regardless of where that surrender might allow God to lead you? What God was asking Mary to do would change her life forever. Oh, I know it's easy for us to look back with perspective of history and say, but she was going to get to be the mother of the Savior. But at that moment, what she was being called to do was to surrender everything. There were no full details about what her future would hold, either the joys or the profound pains, just that she was being asked to be the mother of Jesus. When God's about to do something wonderful, he often doesn't give us a complete picture of what lies ahead. He doesn't map out the whole miracle. He just invites us to obey. Could it be that the absence of miracles today has more to do with us than it has to do with God? It's, it's not that he's unwilling to keep working his wonders, but just that we're reluctant to obey. 
What would happen if we said and we really meant, Lord, whatever you want to do through, through me, I'll be your willing servant. God still works through common people with willing hearts. But there's one for the lesson for Mary's story. Common people with willing hearts who dare to believe the impossible. Mary asked the angel, how can this be? What God was proposing was impossible, but the angel was quick to say, nothing is impossible with God. Well, let me take you back to Martin Luther's words about the three miracles, that God became a man, that a virgin conceived, and that Mary believed. This miracle business often boils down to what we're willing to believe, whether we choose to live a life full of limits or whether we dare to believe the impossible. Michael Slaughter was long pastor of a Ginghamsburg church up in Tip City, Ohio. And he once wrote, God births miracles to people who commit themselves to a journey that exceeds life's limits. In other words, they attempt what is way beyond possible. He said, I want my kids to know that I am living a life that is way beyond my ability. I've never wanted to live a life that was within the means of what I could accomplish. So I've been plugged into God's dream. There will be nothing miraculous about my dream. I want to live a life above my ability that is dependent upon the power of God. Well, what kind of life do you want to settle for? Do you, do you want to set your goals personally or as a church according only to what you can do? Or in faith, do we dare to believe what he can do? If miracles don't still happen, is it God's fault or is it, is it ours? We live in an age that's very quick to limit the possibilities of God. And we're, we're pretty convinced as to what can and cannot happen. It's a good thing Mary didn't stubbornly hold on to disbelief because if she had, she'd never become the mother of the Savior. Maybe the real miracle is believing. I heard a story about a woman who waited until the last minute to send out her Christmas cards, and she rushed into a store and, and bought a package of 50 cards without looking at them too closely. She was still in a hurry. She signed almost all of them, stuffed, stamped, addressed the envelopes. Then she rushed off to the local post office. On Christmas Day, after things had settled down a bit, she happened to pick up one of the leftover cards. But much to her dismay, dismay, the message on each card she'd sent read something like this. This card is just to say a little gift is on your way. And suddenly she realized that almost 50 of her friends were now waiting for something more. The message that God sent to Mary through the angel Gabriel was no mistake. Mary, God has a surprise for you. How many of us are content with so little when God has promised us something abundantly more? I'm convinced that God still wants to work his miracles through common people like you who are willing to say yes, to surrender to his leading while confidently believing that he is still able to do the impossible. Who says that the Mary miracle can't become my miracle too? It may often just come down to what I'm willing to believe, or as Martin Luther put it, perhaps that is the greatest miracle of Christmas.